Hey everybody, Kent Dobson here. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. Here's the question I have for today, the question I'd like to address. It's something like this. Shouldn't I be further along? Shouldn't I have changed more by now? I mean, if not enlightenment, at least something a little closer. Like, shouldn't I have more Christ consciousness or the Buddha mind? I mean, I've been going to my therapist for four years. Or I've gone deep into the Enneagram. Or I've done plenty of breathwork sessions. Or I signed up for one of Kent's retreats. Or I went on an Animus Valley Institute program. Or um, I've taken the, the Myers-Briggs assessment. I think I know myself, and I've been doing the work, so to speak, and yet I still find myself activated and triggered, we might say, or hooked, and it seems like even more stuff is coming up. It's almost as if the further I go, the more assaulted I feel by the underworld (laughs) or by my complexes or subpersonalities um, or coping strategies. I mean, how long is this supposed to last anyway? I mean, if I had a sense for timeline, maybe I could consent to it here. I mean, we're talking about a year, a couple years. <laughs> what is it? Um, and, some, and some of us who are older think, hey, I've been at this work a while, you know, does it end? And maybe if you're just starting, you're thinking, I'm not seeing a lot of examples of people who have uh, transformed deeply and are something like a mentor to me or something, I mean, to even look up to. I don't know if there's anything to this. So I want to have a conversation about formation here and time and process because I think it is very important to have as best we can, some realistic expectations around growth or spiritual growth or psycho-spiritual growth or becoming an adult. I do think we need some help with expectations, especially in our culture right now. I, I am convinced that the, the combination of science and technology has um, has skewed our expectations around how to, quote, fix something. And I'd like to may- maybe first say, as plainly as I can, spiritual growth is not about fixing anything. So my main point is science and technology updates. My phone doesn't work. I get a magic update. There's a, um, a terrible virus. We get a vaccine. There is a spiritual problem, we need a pill. There's a, um, a physiological reality in the brain, there's a drug for that. There's a physiological problem in the body that has to do with the basic realities of aging, don't worry, we've got a pill for that too. So science and technology has given, I think, us an unfair and unrealistic maybe they're not the only ones to blame, but I'm just saying it's a factor, an unrealistic 
expectation for what change should be like. We think about it something like a magic pill. If I consume just the right thing, just the right book, just the right guru, just the right program, um, just the right whatever, I will achieve something. I'll be enlightened. And I'm not even saying all of that is unconscious. There's something behind the whole notion of growth that, at least according to Carl Jung, could be called an instinct, even a religious instinct or a spiritual instinct. What is the thing that tells us deeply we can change and really ought to change and that there's a process for change? I think it's something like an instinct. I'm convinced the instinct is so deep that it's not all that far from hunger and from shelter um, and, you know, that kind of instinct, the instinct toward growth. Uh, and toward a life of meaning, we could even say. That's the religious instinct. And I'm using that positively. I know a lot of people have hang-ups with the word religion. I've talked about that before on, my, on this podcast. I've got a lot more to say on it, um, but I think the word sometimes gets a bad rap and is uh, uh, very misunderstood. Um, the desire to, to order one's life around what's ultimately true even if that remains a question mark, but the ordering of one's life around something ultimate and transcendent is all I mean by religious. And I'm suggesting it's a deep instinct. So um, I think no matter where we are, it's there, it's deep. And so it both pulls us toward our own growth, we could say. This could even be, you could even think about it as the divine or even the soul pulling us toward our own potentialities. And then also, being um, with just the complexities of consciousness and being human, we have also many voices that say, ah, there's nothing to this. It's not for you. You can't do it. Or the opposite of, in, which would be something like inflation. Don't worry, you're already done. You're already so more freaking enlightened than your brother or your sister or, you know, your pastor or uh, your parent, you know, whew. You have made it, you have arrived. That's inflation. So inflation and deflation um, maybe are like two demons that sit at the end of the bed when we wake up each morning when it comes to a life of deeper meaning or a spiritual life. So um, what my goal today is just to just kind of hover around some of the questions that I think are important. And, and by the end, I'll look at a little bit of Bill Plotkin. Um, he was on the podcast you know, a, a few podcasts ago, and uh, he's influenced me in my own in my own thinking. I'm in the guide training program at Anim Animus Valley Institute, and anyway, um, his maps and models have helped me tremendously. I'm not going to go into tr into you know extreme detail, but I think um, his approach to human development. I'm going to mention a few things about it because I think it really helped me calm down a little bit. And maybe that's a starting place. If you feel like you should be further along, calm down a little bit. When I first went to see my spiritual director um, many years ago now, that's the first thing she said to me. I think I put that uh, in Bitten by a Camel. If I didn't, I wrote it somewhere. <laughs> maybe someday it will make it out there in the world. 
I just unloaded. And she said, okay, calm down, calm down. And she used a little line. She may have got it from Ignatius that, um, that God is like a drip on a sponge. God is like a drip on a sponge. And, and, I, and I was almost like, no, I want the flood. I want the skies to be torn open. And I think in her wisdom, she had to be maybe in her late 60s, 70s when I first started seeing her. And um, she was like, no, <laughs> it's change is slow. And, and even the divine is like a drip on a sponge. And I never really went too deep into that metaphor, but if I'm, if I'm the sponge, then how long does it take to fill up a sponge? <laughs> does it ever get full? Um, you know, what, what, what's it like to consent? I think that's a very interesting word, especially when it comes to what's happening in the 21st century. What's the relationship between consent and my own spiritual path? What is it that I'm consenting to or allowing or opening to? And perhaps the divine and the path of the soul and growth and is a lot slower than we'd like to imagine. And so I think maybe that brings us maybe, maybe to some poles here, some, uh, some opposites. And if you haven't been able to tell, I, I like to explore the tension between things. That's why I call this podcast Hints and Guesses. And even at C3, where I, I teach regularly, the past month I've been teaching about paradox, which is the capacity to hold things side by side. And a paradox is to lay alongside things that seem opposing. So um, let's say on the one hand, we have something like enlightenment. And on the other side, we have something like maturity. And maybe just to go a little further with what I was saying before, that in a pill-popping culture, I think we really want instant enlightenment. You know, I think that's part of the attraction to psychedelics at the moment, which I have serious reservations and questions about. Um, even though I know a lot of people who are participating in this, but there's an element to it that strikes me a little like the pill-popping culture. And of course, every time I offer some critiques, it's I, I hear back, "Well, you you don't know because you're not in it. You're not doing it. You you." You know, I, I don't know what kind of uh, logical fallacy that is. I'm not a philosopher, but um, it's not much of an argument to, to say you can't critique unless you've experienced exactly what I've experienced. I think, eh, I don't know about that. Um, anyway, I'm just at least raising some questions. What happens when there's a flood of something? Like the sky is torn open and there's a voice from heaven and the voice says, you're my kid, you know, you're my son, you're my daughter, you belong, you matter. What does that do? What, what happens in the aftermath of that kind of enlightening experience? And, and I want to say moments of transcendence, states of transcendence, the sky being torn open is possible. I don't think you can manufacture it, in my opinion, but it's possible. I've experienced moments of transcendence, moments of profound opening where the veil 
of the universe was torn open and there was a glimpse. And see, the Bible warns against something like this. The Bible says, you can't see the face of God and live, not even Moses. Moses begs to see the face of God. God says, no, but you can see my backside (laughs) and only that at a glimpse and I'll cover you with my hand. And even that, he comes down from the mountain and his face is glowing and people can't even look at him. And there's a sense of separation between himself and the very people that he's trying to help. So maybe the craving for unfiltered divine encounter, we need some caution around. Because they can be very disturbing. Even Carl Jung, who, who he said, he said something like this, um, his confrontation with the unconscious started around the age of 40, 41, something like that, and, and ended about the age of 55. And there were many moments when he thought he was going insane. Now, is that something you want to go through? Is that something you want to go through? Um, now, I'll, t- I'll take a weekend retreat. Thank you very much. I don't want 15 years or whatever the math is. I was thinking of, of, of St. Paul when I said 15 years. He has his road to Damascus experience the blinding light, he's blinded for three days. And if you do the math according to Paul, 15 years later, he starts talking about it. Okay, so that brings us to the question of maturing. Or here's other words, integration or wholeness or a process of healing. So I'd like to say, yes, there are states of of union, of oneness, of uh, glimpses of of even the deep self, of the abyss. And on the other hand, there's the process of maturing and integrating and um, submitting to and being shaped by. And this takes time. Let's take Jesus, for example. I think something's intri- intriguing is happening in the baptism story. I'm, I was just writing about this in, in my new book, which I hope I will eventually finish. And uh, anyway, in the baptism story, the sky's torn open, the spirit, the wind descends like a dove, and, and Jesus hears a voice. And it's not obvious that other people hear this voice. It, it seems like a kind of personal encounter. And then it says, the spirit, the same wind, the same mystery of God, the the, the feminine, ocean-like, wind-like nature of the divine, that's the spirit, drives him into the wilderness. And now it's time to find out what Jesus is made of for 40 days and 40 nights, to meet the tempter, the devil, the shadow, the unsavory parts, his own lust for power or for food or for fame or whatever fill in the blank, that's the temptation story. And you don't have a, you don't have Jesus preaching the kingdom of God without the desert. You don't have Jesus um, healing and giving parables without this wilderness process, without the 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I know the, the, the story's a bit, um, well, we used to say in graduate school, fancy scholarship term, telescoped, that timeline in ancient documents is telescoped, it's, it's narrowed. And so, you know, sometimes it'll read quite, you know, sequentially, especially in in some of the Gospels, this, then this, then this, then this, and you think, well, 
wouldn't that be nice? You know, I get baptized, you know, God speaks to me and then, then I only have to go through the desert for 40 days. And then after that, things are pretty clear. And then, you know, well, oftentimes it's, that's just the process of writing. And, and at least that's a, a scholarly approach, probably on the ground, it felt to Jesus, like it feels to many of us that whatever is happening unto me, um, I'm, uh, it's a bit foggy. And it's happening quite slowly, and I'm not sure what to make of it. After all, Jesus is 30 before he ever leaves home. That's some pretty slow going, all right? Um, there's a, a warning in the, in, in the Kabbalah. Might, the warning might actually be in the Talmud, but um, anyway, you shouldn't study the Kabbalah until you're 40. And then everybody who's under 40 is like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm enlightened. You know, well, I know what I'm doing. I've, you know, no. There's some hesitation because to peer into the face of God might wreck you. So a certain amount of maturity and integration and wholeness and healing and working on our hang-ups and um, our mother and father complexes, you know. Uh, and even if you wouldn't use any of that fancy psychological language, you know what I mean. You ha- you've got hang-ups, you've got issues, and, um, and the definition of spiritual bypassing is thinking just because I've had an enlightened state of consciousness, I get to go around the work. And I'd like to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. That's delusional. And nothing is worse than an enlightened, delusional guru who hasn't done the most basic work. That's some dangerous stuff. And we ought to run from that. And there are many of them out there in the culture right now offering their, you know, it's like, it's like the, uh, the tinctures of, of, the, of, the, of, the, um, of the West where people travel, traveled around in wagons offering all kinds of healing oils, you know, snake oil salesmen we came to call them. There's a lot of that happening right now. So what's my main point so far? Calm down. Um, you can't make moments of oceanic oneness happen. That's a quote from James Finley. And we all, no matter what, no matter our background, have some responsibility to submit to the process of just maturing, maturing and working on our stuff and, and, uh, and integrating the bits and pieces and, and glimpses and, and hints and guesses that we do get along the way. And see, I think that's what's happening in the, in the Jesus story. When, when the sky is torn open, what do you do with the phrase, you are the son of God? Well, that can easily become, talk about possibility of becoming mega inflated. I have seen the light. Come and worship me. Jesus never one time says worship me. In fact, he goes straight into the wilderness and looks the devil in the face, the shadow. Not fooling himself. And only, I think, in this kind of like, like paradoxical tension between the divine light and the divine shadow or the divine light or, the, or human light and the human shadow or, or whatever between um, um, baptism and wilderness, only in the tension of that do you get something like a process that's happening unto Jesus. Um, and I'm saying the reason why it's in the Gospels is because it's, it's telling us something. It's giving us a clue about the nature of this. Calm down. It's like a drip on a sponge. 
It takes time. There's nowhere to go. We're asked to deepen. We're asked to surrender. We're asked to be honest. We're asked to integrate, which is quite um, risky even, to take the insights we have been given in the closet of our you know, heart and to take them out and say, yeah, and I'm going to live this way, to integrate it. That's some risky, risky business. We'd rather stay in our little inner sanctum or maybe just allow a few in and talk about how enlightened we are rather than the risk of taking um, of, our, of, our, of our own hints and guesses and living them out in the world. So you've been shown something like you are the son of God. Well, Jesus, by the way, his self-referential title was son of man, son of humanity. So this seems to be a little glimpse of his essence, of his soul, of his soul connected with, with the father, we might say, with the mystery. And okay, one thing to believe privately, another thing to say, what is this going to cost me in culture, in society? And unless you're in the process of maturing, you're going to run from that at all costs. Or, the, or we might say, the moment things get difficult, you'll flee the scene. That's Peter. You know, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, you'll deny me in about five minutes. Uh, not well integrated yet. So calm down. Maybe I should just have called this podcast, Calm Down. Calm down. You're not that special. Things take time. Um, I, I think I, my wife told me this. Um, she got it from James Finley, and he may have said it at one of the retreats that she attended. Um, someone was like, well, what should I do now? You know, uh, He said, go home to your family, and, and they will sift you like wheat. This is what anyone who has ever been on a kind of spiritual experience, a pilgrimage, um, a weekend retreat, uh, a vision fast, um, whatever, knows there's power in this. Go home to your family and they will sift you like wheat. We'll see. You get to find out what's real and what's not, what sticks around, what's fantasy, uh, what's delusional, and what's not. Because just the challenge of living everyday life. Nobody gets out of scrubbing the toilets or some version thereof. And if you do, it's quite dangerous. You know, if you do, if you think you're, if you're holier than doing the dishes, you've got a problem. I've told this story once before, but I love it. I guess James Finley is just on my mind, but um, there seems to be a fact that is trans-religious and trans-spiritual, and that is growth is like a process, <laughs> and there are different ways of framing it. And Teresa of Avila has the castles, seven castles, I believe or seven rooms, and very powerful, highly recommend. Um, it's one map of, of, of the spiritual life that I think is quite powerful. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, James Finley goes to Thomas Merton, his spiritual director, and they're reading Teresa. And James Finley kind of in this sort of youthful humility is like, hey, you know, I think I'm probably in, in Castle 4, Room 4, um, but I'd be okay if you told me I'm in 3. And Thomas Merton apparently said to James Finley, it's none of your damn business. 
what room you're in. Now go and wash the dishes. You know, that, that is what's needed here. <laughs> um, nobody gets out of just the drip on the sponge, the slog of everyday life, of washing dishes, of letting go of the ego's need to stake its claim at being in some higher state of consciousness. Let that go. It's not the same thing as saying, don't take it seriously. No, take spiritual growth seriously. But you have to take it humbly, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself. You know, When I first read about spiral dynamics, to speak of another map, just by reading about it, I thought, well, I'm, you know, I understand this. I guess I'm pretty high up the spiral, you know. I'm orange or whatever, some color scheme. I'm not quite turquoise, but I'll be there soon, you know. This is exactly what the ego does with any system. It tries to stake its claim pretty high up so it feels good about itself. Uh, meanwhile, not only have I really misunderstood the nature of spiral dynamics, I'm deluding myself. So... Calm down, calm down um, when it comes to this sort of thing. And where are we going? <laughs> and what's the point? See, um, here's where I might want to bring in, uh, well, uh, two stories, two stories. Well, <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll just do one story, and then I want to talk a little bit about Plotkin. So if you're familiar with the, the Greek story of Psyche and Eros, now Psyche and Eros, they fall in love, and... Um, Psyche is, um, makes a deal with Eros, or Eros makes a deal with Psyche, one of the two. And um, Eros says, okay, we can be lovers. You can live with me in this um, sort of garden-like state, but you can never see me. You can never see me. And she says, fine, no problem. I don't need to know who you are. He says, I'll return every night, um, and we will be connected and, and uh, unified and experience love, and, but you can't see me in the daylight. And she says, no problem. But her sisters, of course, this is what the story of Cinderella is, is based on, try to talk her out of it. And eventually she gets you know, this bad taste in her mouth and lights a lamp and goes and exposes um, Eros. And she sees him. And, and instead of being this demonic and dangerous and gross, grotesque and gross, ugly being, like she was told by her sisters, he, she sees a god. And she is, doesn't, didn't know that. So Eros has to run away and flee. Great, terrible grief and loss, and Psyche roams the earth searching for Eros, and, 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 and hence begins this deep and painful longing for connection, for union. Uh, and I'm going to provide an interpretation between soul and the ego, between uh, who we are and the divine, um, something like that. So anyway, she finally uh, agree, uh, um, Aphrodite finally agrees that, all right, I'll allow you and Eros to get back together, but I'm going to give you three impossible tasks, and I only want to talk about three. I think she's given four, actually, but at first she's told three. Um, and the first is, she said, all right, before the sunrise, you have to sort these seeds, wheat and barley and lentils and all kinds of other things. I think some ants come and help her, and the Cinderella story mice come and Helper, but it's the sorting, sorting of seeds. And this, I just want to emphasize that no matter what, I don't care if you've had the tiniest glimpse of a deeper life or if you've had the sky torn open, nobody gets out of the sorting of seeds. 
This is the process of integration. This and not that. Separating, sifting, um, working with, acknowledging, being honest about, having more and more revealed to you um, about the complexities of who you are and your motivations and, and the stories you've been telling yourself and the stories that have run your life for you. That's requires some serious sorting. And it's going to seem like an impossible task. And it is an impossible task. And in fact, you might need a little divine help. You might need the help of some of a guide um, or two in various ant-like forms. My main point is nobody gets out of it. It's like Jesus in the wilderness. He, he has to sort the seeds. Am I addicted to power? Am I addicted to fame? Am I addicted to bread? Am I addicted to acknowledgement? Why am I doing this? What am I going to do with this? Sorting and sorting and sorting, and it takes time. It takes 40 days and 40 nights of no food, or it takes four years, or it takes 40 years if you want to take the Exodus story. And... And yeah, I don't know what else I might want to say about that right now, but if you're not in the process of sorting seeds, you might want to ask yourself, well, why not? What am I avoiding here? Um, what would it look like to, to humbly give this some attention? Those are things, questions I think are worth asking. Now, here's something else I'm going to say as as a personal aside. So it's difficult, even though I know a lot about maps and models and Jung and Plotkin and some of the models and maps of the saints and mystics and some contemporary models and maps. And I know a lot, I've read a lot. That's maybe the better way to say it. I've read a lot. <laughs> It's still quite challenging for me to say with any clarity where I am. And that's, and that's, you know, and that what, what I find so encouraging is something like, well, it's none of your damn business, you know, um, what needs attention? What's right in front of me? So, um, with that said though, I feel like I have experienced, uh, certain, uh, traditional, uh, I've experienced the traditional terrain, like uh, being, like if I take the Jonah story, like being thrown overboard and descending, being swallowed by the underworld, by the darkness. I've experienced a kind of descent, and maybe there's more yet to come that I know nothing about, and I'm willing to say, yeah, there's probably more. But I've experienced a kind of descent, and I've experienced a kind of underworld time where suddenly dreams and visions and mysteries and prayers and longings and, and, and heartache and grief uh, begin to work on me and break me down. And I remember saying to one of my mentors something like this. I feel like I've had little glimpses of soul. I've tasted a little of the divine, kind of like, Shouldn't I be further along? And I said, why am I hijacked by, by my subpersonalities and complexes? Why am I still, and in fact, it seems like they're getting worse. I feel like I look at my behavior at times and it's like all of a sudden, like bursts of anger that don't seem enlightened at all are coming to the surface. Or daydreaming about ridiculous out of reach, 
fanciful, um, well, fantasies are occupying my mind. Shouldn't I be more enlightened? And he said to me, well, it's good to know that you're still on the path because in my experience, the further you go, the more shadows come out of hiding. That's not exactly great news if you want to, you know, stay in the realm of positive hashtags and manifesting and um, I'm just going to bring forth in the universe beauty and goodness and, and, um, and that's what's going to meet me. I'm sorry to say, if you go further on the journey, it seems to be the shadows come out of hiding. And the stuff you've been trying to keep at bay and your organized and well-influenced well first half of life persona um, that in some ways has helped organize the more hidden qualities suddenly is not in charge anymore or is a bit, a bit on shaky ground, we might say. And the simple thing is, to, is, the simple way of putting it is shit comes to the surface. So this is actually an opportunity. This is the sorting of the seeds. This is being with the tempter in the wilderness. It's just part of the process. And if we run away from it, we don't grow up. And, and you can see why people resist it. You can see why I resist it. Dang it. I'm not as enlightened as I thought. I can't just cling to these special experiences, telling myself I'm so special. Nope, time to sort some seeds, time to ask questions of integration and maturity. Um, and admit once again that this whole thing is like a drip on a sponge. Okay, so just a little uh, Bill Plotkin. So in his book, Nature and the Human Soul, he... Um, takes what he calls a nature-based and soul-centric approach to human growth and development through eight stages. Let me count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yes, eight stages. And these correspond to archetypes, and they also correspond to life stages. And what I find actually quite fascinating about um, Bill Plotkin's model that strikes me as true and ancient at the same time. I mean, it's fresh and contemporary on the one hand, but also about as old um, as, as you can put it, <laughs> is that to really reach the stage of master or sage, that's the final archetype, the sage, we might say elder, you're old by that point. Now that alone ought to tell you something, that there's a relationship between human maturation, just on the ordinary phys physiological, I'm getting old, I'm getting wrinkles, and psycho-spiritual development. Now, that, that doesn't mean you can't be further along or way behind. In fact, he goes on to say in the rest of the book that Western culture, um, and we could say Western influence culture, which is most cultures on the earth right now, are are might be aging in terms of their body, but psychologically, they're at a state of arrested development. That's why that show Arrested Development is so popular, because it's like, it's like, here's a window into what you're actually like and what your family is actually like. They're actually 
really nothing more than junior hires posturing, all right? So, so um, I, now I like junior hires, okay? But I just mean from a, a psycho-spiritual point of view. So just chew on that for a moment. What is the relationship between my own aging and my own development? It's like saying, calm down. You cannot be a sage at 40. I'm sorry. Even if people say, you're wise beyond your years, you know? Uh, you don't want people saying that for too long because it, it starts to backfire after a while. Um, and that's not to say, of course, young people, and I've met many young people who have had profound um, windows into what's ultimately true. I might call that a glimpse or a state of consciousness that is profoundly beyond their their overall stage, you could say, or the place they are in life. They're not talking like a high schooler. They're talking like an elder for a second, but they're not going to embody the stage of being an elder or a sage because they're not there yet. They haven't lived enough life. They haven't changed enough diapers, you know? So again, calm down. You're growing. You're getting older. The question is, are you going to cooperate with the natural religious what I would call instinct for spiritual growth as part of your aging process? Or are you going to resist at all cost um, and try to remain, you know, a teenager when you're 55 and you're picking up your grandkids from school, you know, pretending like you're just, you know, a cool kid? That's, uh, of course, a, a cultural obsession we have right now. We've got a pill for that. You know, no, I'm not against taking care of your body and I'm not here to, you know, to condemn anyone. You know, I'm, I spend an enormous number of hours, you know, working out. Why? Well, because I'm getting old and I can feel that my body's not working like it used, it used to. So I'm fighting with it a bit and working with it. (laughs) That would be the nice way of saying it or fighting it. Um, but yeah, I don't really want to get older. And another part of me says tough. And another part of me says, what a gift. You know, I got this from Richard Rohr. Um, he says it's an indigenous phrase, no wise person ever wanted to be younger. And so you look around at the older people in your life who want to be younger and you can pretty much guarantee you're not looking at a lot of wisdom. So um, what do I want to do at this point? I, I, I want to briefly, very briefly, talk about a couple of stages here that I think is related to the question, shouldn't I be further along? So the first four or five stages in Plotkin's model are the most critical and crucial for people in the Western world, for people like me, for people like you. Um, And I'm just going to list them to you. The first, I'm just giving you the archetypes, is the innocent. This is early, early childhood, baby. Um, The explorer. This is middle childhood. The thespian, this is adolescence, early adolescence, the thespian, that's an actor. Um, and he means that positively, by the way. Followed by late adolescence, which is wanderer. Followed by early adulthood, which is the apprentice. I might as well finish him. After the apprentice is the artisan. After the artisan is the master. And after the master is the sage. No more doing, just being. So those are the archetypes. 
Um, he tries to argue in the book, you have to read it yourself, nature and the human soul, that he's not making these up, okay? There they are. There they are in plain sight and myths and legends and spiritualities and practices, and they're the wisdom of the ancestors collected and, and, and organized um, by him in, in a kind of map, um, transreligious and transcultural map. So what's interesting is that most people, most of us, are stuck in the thespian, in puberty, in early adolescence, which I've mentioned before on this podcast, um, what uh, Bill Plotkin would call, uh, what does he call it? Um, a pathologically adolescent culture. <laughs> Always makes me laugh. Um, and of course, when I first read that, I thought, well, I'm not pathologically adolescent. See, that, that's the danger of reading anything at all. You know, the ego says, oh, I, I, t I can use this too. Let's be spiritually enlightened. Truth was, uh, nope, I hadn't really even faced the tasks of early adolescence, stage three. So I'm going to read you some of them. Here's a task of this stage of life. Fashioning a social presence that is both authentic and socially acceptable. <laughs> that, can you think of something more difficult for a teenager than fashioning a social presence that is both authentic and socially acceptable, that is the massive, heart-rendering difficulty of being an adolescent. And I, I, I want to add to that, adolescence like this, social acceptance and authenticity, continues way beyond high school, and now way beyond the 20s, and way beyond the 30s, and way beyond the 40s, and some of us are still right there, either unable to fashion a social presence that is authentic um, or unable to fashion a social presence that is acceptable, socially acceptable. And this is part of, um, if I can use other language, a maturing ego. And, and most of us need help in the maturing ego. This might be even part of the, the, the uh, sorting of seeds. Like you might, you might find yourself like being wildly authentic not following any particular um, social convention, but you're not well socially accepted. You can't keep a job. You know, you keep getting fired and blaming other people. Well, they don't see my own creativity. Okay, this is the inability to fashion a social presence that is socially acceptable. That's the present work at hand. You can't go around it. I don't care how many like amazing insights you have and um, you know how you're able to move up and down all the chakras in your kundalini yoga pose. Um, you keep getting fired. So you're still at the thespian stage. You still need to fashion a, uh, a socially acceptable identity. And in some ways, I'm really, really grateful that I became a high school teacher and a pastor just for that reason. I found some social acceptance as a pastor. I also found, found it to be uncomfortable over time, but I needed that. My ego needed that. We need healthy ego development. Yes, other people accept me, and I accept myself for the most part in this role, and it feels somewhat authentic, although intention. How authentic am I in this role? And you can see where some of this stuff is going. So um, this is, by the way, um, one of the things that, that uh, Bill says about early adolescence, stage three, is that the gift to the community is fire. 
I love that. The gift of the community is fire. We need these fiery individuals, idealistic and passionate and wanting to change the world and wanting to be authentic and wanting to be socially accepted. That's like the fire of culture, you know? Um, that's why people get up all, you know, off the couch and march in the streets because of that adolescent and youthful fire. It's needed in the world. It's a gift to the community. It just happens to be one of the passing stages because one's social identity, or the, we could say the compass of one's identity, is still around peer group and sex and society and relationships and and social acceptance and, quote, being real, the needle keeps pointing toward peer group. Peer group, peer group, peer group. And, of course, that's spilled into the political realm, which is certainly stuck in early adolescence as we, as 2020 and now 2021 continues to reveal to this. Now, it is a stage, and you'd have to read the book to find out why um, most of us are have experienced some form of arrested development around this. I do want to mention the next stage because this is where the transition um, is quite dangerous and powerful and um, many of us are experiencing and also where all the questions start to arise like, shouldn't I be further along? The next stage, the archetype is the wanderer. All right, it's, it's the wanderer. And... Something, usually a series of events or mysteries, comes into our life and kicks us out of our socially acceptable roles. Could be very quietly, could be dramatically, like me quitting a job, um, but most often it's more subtle. It's the Jonah story where he's thrown overboard, okay? He negotiates and they negotiate with him, but eventually his identity, as it relates to the peer group on the deck of the ship, runs its course and he gets thrown into the raging sea. And that's the way it is. And now you're in the phase of the wanderer, which is the beginning of not knowing. It's not the same unknowing as the late stage of sage, um, that kind of of non-dual knowing, which is the realm of the elder typically, but this is a kind of unknowing of one's own life. Like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what, what I mean by God anymore. I don't, I don't know if I fit in, if I will ever fit in anymore. And actually, you know you're really in the wandering phase when you're actually no longer that interested in returning to the peer groups but your interest starts to shift toward the mysteries of soul, the mysteries of nature, the mysteries of the underworld, the mysteries of the divine. You're more interested in that. And if you're, but, I mean, you have to be honest about that. If you're actually just interested in fitting in, well, maybe if I just switch churches, this one would be, you know, more inclusive of my values and, and needs. And okay, that, that, that's fine. Um, and you might need that. But if that's the center of gravity, am I accepted among my peers, then you have a hint of where you are and where the work is. Nothing wrong with that. Bill says at the end of each chapter, um, he gets to the end and says, stage three is the best stage to be in. And then he gets to the end of stage four and says, stage four is the best stage to be in. And then on and on it goes. It's like saying, calm down. There's nowhere to go. We're asked only to deepen and deepen wherever we find ourselves. That's what we're asked. And there may be some unfinished business from previous stages, by the way, <laughs> some sorting of seeds. Anyway, back to the, the shift to the wanderer. Um, the task is leaving home. 
That's the task. You leave home, and home is the adolescent personality. You leave the first house of belonging. You leave the first identity. You leave the first persona or personas. You leave the thing that you spent so much time um, investing in and claiming and announcing to the world, I am an X. The X has to go. To find why, the X has to go. And leaving home is very, very frightening. Really, it's frightening on the existential level, and it might actually literally be leaving home. Um, part, part of the beginning, only the very beginning of my own personal wandering was leaving the United States and living in Israel. You know, um, it was destabilizing in the sense of what am I looking for? Leaving mom and dad, leaving evangelical Christianity. I mean, it turns out I didn't really leave it. I came back to it to a certain extent, only that, you know, then to be uncomfortable again, but for a window of time, it was, it was launching me out into the greater world. No one cared in Israel what I believed. No one cares what you believe in graduate school, you know, really. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a period of exploration, and it's, it's quite scary. But a leaving the home nonetheless. This is God saying to Abraham, leave your father, leave your country, leave your people, and go to a place I will show you. He doesn't even know where he's going. That's those, those, that list leave your father, leave your people, leave your country, is the shift to the wanderer. This is the task of leaving home, of the adolescent personality. And the second part of the task is to begin to explore the mysteries of nature and psyche. That's a quote from Bill, the mysteries of nature and psyche. You might put in other ways, other forms, but I would say the non-negotiable is the mysteries. All right. Who am I? What is life? What's happening? Um... What's, what, what is the, the underworld, you know? Um, this is Persephone who gets snatched from the upper world and taken down to the underworld, you know? Down, down you must go as part of the process of maturation. And I think for many of the people that I work with, they're right on the edge of this, and, and many of the Many of us in our culture are, are on the edge of this, the edge of leaving our first genuine desire for social acceptance and authenticity, the thespian, the actor, the mask wearer, leaving that and beginning to enter um, a bit of the unknown, letting go of that. Is there anything beneath what I've staked my claim on the roles that I've staked my claim on, the roles that I've needed to identify as. We're right on the cusp of that. And once you enter the, the phase of the wanderer, really, I suppose you can always, you could pull the ripcord. Maybe you could get out of it. Some, some part of me even doubts that, <laughs> that you can go back. I think in some ways you can't go back, and most people don't. Now, they might get stuck in the wanderer, too. <laughs> that's, that's also true. But for the time being, I, I simply want to say, that to be inundated with feelings of doubt, like this process is taking way too long, I'm tired of wandering, is a clue that you're in the right kind of place. You're in the right kind of place. And might be time to sort some seeds. Might be time to, for some unfinished business. Might be time to take the mysteries of soul, of God, of the divine, of nature uh, more seriously. It, it might be time to more concretely um, let go of that 
of the previous home, which is part of the task. So I'm trying to normalize that the doubts, shouldn't I be uh, further along, is really part of the, the nature of the sequence that I'm, that I'm describing here, or the unfolding that I'm describing here. And I could even add at this part, shouldn't I be further along, reveals the very thing I'm trying to describe, that life maturation, physiological maturation, getting old, you know, growing up, getting old, dying, you know, the basics, the, mere, the, the other side of that, the hidden side of that is the opportunity to grow up spiritually along with that. And it's slow. It takes time. It's a drip on a sponge. I hope you hear that I just keep repeating myself at this point. Now, I do want to only mention, kind of just in passing, what happens after the phase of wanderer, in case you're wondering, because this is the beginning of early adulthood um, and requires something that, that Bill Plotkin calls soul initiation. You'll have to dive into his work for a more detailed um, definition because he means something very specific by that. Um, but the, the image he uses of the, is of the wellspring instead of the wanderer, the wellspring. You're, 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 you found a deeper source in which you're drawing from that you didn't manufacture or make, but you discovered in your wanderings. This is someone who has tasted the deeper well and can draw from it. It's like Jesus saying the disciples come to him at one point in the Gospel of John and, and, uh, and they bring him food and he says, I already ate. I have food you know nothing about. So he's tasted from the deeper wellspring and he's able to draw from it. And the task is beginning to learn or is beginning to, to learn to embody what you learn during the wandering phase, the, 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 the divine encounters, the mysteries, the glimpses of soul. This is Jesus coming up out of the wilderness and up out of the baptism story saying, how do I live this stuff in the real world, in the concrete world, back in society? So there's kind of a leaving of culture and returning to culture. This is where the sort of descent and return images from Joseph Campbell really begin uh, to ring true here. So there's a kind of return um, and the task is to embody a bit of the soul in the world, um, you know, through strategies and delivery systems and ways of being and, 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 and to, to make them live. Not to hold them in some sort of privatized closet, but to, to let them out. And that's a whole process that I'm not going to get into um, at this uh, point in the podcast. I'm going to end with one... Um, image here, since we've spent so much time with, uh, with Bill Plotkin. So one of the central images he uses is of the cocoon. So the caterpillar goes through a series of moltings and then is wrapped in the cocoon or the chrysalis, chrysalis for butterfly, cocoon for moth. And inside the cocoon, the chrysalis, what happens is that the caterpillar doesn't grow wings, but is dissolved. And this is the painful process of having everything you thought you know in life rearranged, dissolved, dismantled into a kind of soup. And inside that soup, scientists call it, imaginal cells start firing. And kind of the hidden mysteries of the caterpillar's true self, true DNA, begin to fire off. 
and begin to reshape mysteriously um, the caterpillar into something like a butterfly. It's not over at that point. All kinds of dangers await. Um, I remember my daughter and my wife and I went to the went to Meyer Garden to see the butterfly exhibit. Here it's an indoor greenhouse uh, in our in our area, and every year they had the butterfly exhibit. And one year we horribly watched the a butterfly's wings unable to fill with the vital fluid and blood it needs, only to fall to the ground and die. Yeah, okay. <laughs> In case you needed any glimpses of nature is always beautiful, you know, everything is harmonious and is one, you know, a moment like that, you're like, oh, God, okay, there are risks here. Uh, nature is not always my friend, and it's also sort of somehow whole and one and, and is right somehow. In any case, there are dangers along the way, and, um, and that process of having, of being dismantled, dissolved, and rearranged is terrifying and dangerous and beautiful all at the same time, but it takes time for those imaginal cells to fire, for the rearranging and reshaping to take place. And I want to say something simple. If you're in a place of life where you've had a few hints and clues about who you are on the deeper level or hints and guesses about the nature of God or mysterious experiences or dreams that you can't quite explain or a sense of longing that keeps pulling you further and further, let it work. That's the most important thing. Let it work. Submit to the work. This is what Rilke says. Allow yourself to be defeated by even greater beings. Wrestle um, and surrender. Don't cling and grasp and try to make sense and manufacture and then claim to be some sort of spiritual, spiritually enlightened ego that now has everything that the world needs and, um, you know, is inflated. Just let it work. Let your experiences continue to work on you. Let the mysteries continue to work on you. Do you know how many times... I'm mean, going to... I just... I was going to ask it in the form of a question as if I knew. So I'll just put it like this. Jesus apparently regularly has to return to Eremos Tapos in Greek to a desolate place, um, a wilderness, and there he spends all night in prayer. He continues to wonder and to allow the mysteries to work on him, to reshape his life. Not to just go around saying, yeah, but I was baptized and God told me I was a son and away we go and I'm going to teach everybody to be baptized and, and I've got a whole system and just follow me and no, he continues to be in conversation with the mystery of his own life and the mystery of God and he spends all night in prayer and that's just the way it seems to be. Continue to surrender to the ways in which you still might need to be formed. You've got more seeds to sort. It's okay. Change takes time. That's all I got to say. Thanks for listening. Really special thanks to my, my Patreon supporters. I cannot do this without you. I really, really, really appreciate it. I wish you well, and I'll see you next time.